Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From homelessness to housing, I've got the Biden-Harris agenda's number. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. First, I want to thank people for helping camp. That was amazing. I feel like Christmas is over. I love Christmas. I love the whole season. But it's like a couple of weeks of hard holidaying, which I don't know if I've ever told you how uh, how strenuous our holidays are, but they're quite strenuous. Um, but I did not want to let the season pass without, first of all, of course, wishing everybody a happy new year and also thanking people for answering the call and helping Cam and his family have a Merry Christmas. So I really felt that the Propaganda Report community came together for him. And if there's one achievement I feel like having podcasted has done or that I've done through that, it is building this Propaganda Report community, not only like as a group, but individuals who have become friends through the show and all of that. And I just really felt like people came together for Cam, who is part of this community. And I just, I got like choked up about it really, because just, I love, I love good human beings and we've got a lot of them in our gang. So I'm happy for that. It helps ease the pain of all the crap I have to sift through to try to, try to get to the bottom of the agendas. Um, and it's not even fun anymore. Like it was fun with Trump. Like he would just say crazy things. Even if I disagreed with it, I would just, he would just crack me up. It would be fun to figure out what he really said, what they were saying he said. But this is just so dry that they're probably going to get away with whatever because who even wants to read it? But what, so this is the like incredibly boring headline, Biden administration announces plans to drastically reduce homelessness nationwide. I mean, I could pick that apart on its face. I don't, I can already tell he's going to overstep the bounds of the executive office of a restricted federal government. Homelessness is a local problem. What causes it? They're definitely trying to push an agenda. No doubt about that. Probably a housing agenda. What would be the agenda? You know, what would be the, if the problem is homelessness, the solution is going to be housing, right? And when you're talking about housing, you're talking about human habitation. You're talking about Habitat 1 or Habitat 2 or Habitat 3. These are UN protocols, UN conferences starting in 1976, all of which plug into Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, all of the stuff that plugs into the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, all of that stuff comes together. And really, I would say the most important kernel of that is housing, is, is our physical environment. It really all builds on that. You could say it builds on Habitat One's initial proclamation that private property shouldn't exist, that regular people like you and me should not own land. So that's like their foundation point. And you can see why they would have ulterior motives for that. They act like it's because it's the source of all inequity. 
But obviously, I mean, I think it's the source of all equity. If we actually own the land, if everybody owned the land they lived on, there would be a lot less power uh, centralized and in control up at the top. So obviously they care about owning the land, controlling the land, us not controlling it. But beyond that, to, to craft, to sculpt our environment, you can see that they're all doing it to move in one direction. And that is to have us all in kind of modular housing, stuff that kind of looks the same, that runs the same, that has ease of surveillance, has high-tech wiring, doesn't have niches that you could duck into to, to do anything outside the eye of the surveillance cameras that limit where we go, who we talk to, just even by forced, by just the way the traffic patterns are laid out. Those are very thought through. They're not, there's doubtful, unforeseen consequences of certain plans or whatever. So the control of the human habitat and and the audacity of even talking about it in those terms, like it is something to be controlled, that it is one comprehensive worldwide problem is galling. But uh, it, it, right now, the current movement for changes in housing is, is the homelessness crisis. And of course... When I see a crisis, I always ask, my first question is, what policy might have led to this crisis that humanity, culture, the market was incapable of dealing with over any amount of time? And I definitely came up with that on the homelessness thing, which seems to have been getting worse ever since it became a problem of national concern. So I want to kind of pull a lot of this stuff apart. I think we're going to do a two-parter. I'm going to be at my mom's next week, and I don't want to go a week without a deep dive or another week without a deep dive. And I've got so much material here, I could probably do like four shows on it. I'm hoping I can keep it short. So I want to talk about the, the homelessness protocol thing they released on the White House website. It's actually just like a press conference kind of thing, like a press release on the on the White House website, but you click through and you get to the all-in federal strategic plan to end homelessness. So I don't want all-in. I don't want all of government. I don't want to obliterate checks and balances. I don't want the feds controlling a very local problem I don't want it. It's not going to work. It's like the Department of Education. Not, not that it's not going to go to, it's going to do what they want. There's a lot of agendas here and solving the problem is not one of the agendas. So they talk about what the goal, this is the goal. It says within each pillar, so there's the foundation pillars and the solution pillars of their homelessness plan. Within, within each pillar, this is a quote, are strategies and actions that lay the groundwork for a future when no one experiences homelessness, not even for one night. So they are setting up an impossible goal, like not even a desirable goal. So the report from Iron Mountain, which I love to quote, the subtitle is, on the possibility and desirability of peace. So even something as seemingly perfect as peace might not even be desirable. No, not to have policies that mean not a single person can have 
homelessness for even a single night. And, and in one of these, one of these speeches or whatever, Biden said, homeless, uh, housing home should be a right, should be a right. So if it's, if it's a right and you're not permitted to have a single person not homeless, then you're talking about mandates. You're talking about laws. You're talking about curfews. You're talking about monitoring. I mean, what was the biggest thing, in my opinion, that Obamacare led to? I would say that was surveillance. It was monitoring. It was information gathering. And I believe some people have stated that in the past. Information was the biggest takeaway from Obamacare or the biggest impact of Obamacare. Maybe it's goal that's, I recall people saying that, like really high level deep state types saying the reason we need national health care is for the information. And I feel like that's, that could be this, but that's not even like my focus. I do, I, but if you say you can't have homelessness for one night, I mean, think about the, the implications. I mean, I've been homeless for a night. I've been between apartments. Like I was sleeping on my mother's couch or whatever. I mean, not lately, but I definitely could. I have, I, there are people in my family who do that. Like my mother still lives in the same house after 50 years, like people will show up there and that by their definition would be considered homeless. Like they have a very, very broad definition of homeless and they want like permanent, reliable, sustainable, like unevictable. I don't think they use that exact word, but like stuff like that. So it's, it's not, it's not, it, they're setting, they're defining the problem to be of such a scope that it can never be solved, which means this will be a perpetual thing like the national healthcare in England. It's just like always going to be a wedge issue. It's always going to be a money pit. It's never going to work right. It's not going to solve the problems. So the, yeah, so this is, this is a quote from Biden's website when he was a candidate about housing being a right. Housing should be a right, not a privilege. Uh, Joe Biden, this is what it says, and this just infuriates me. Joe Biden will invest $640 billion over 10 years so every American has access to housing that is affordable, stable, safe, and healthy, accessible, energy efficient, and resilient, and located near good schools and with a reasonable commute to their jobs. What the F? Like, that is just an, it, it, impossible. I don't have all those things. I don't have all those things. I, I can't, I have to move out. Like I have been wondering when my, they're going to kick me out of my house since like August. And you know, so it's not stable. It's safe. Is it healthy? I don't know. There's like some weird buzzing going around my house right now. Like, I don't know. Um, is it energy efficient and resilient? I don't even know what that means. Is it located near good schools? Like Yes, my current house is, but the last place I lived wasn't. I wanted to live that was close to work, but that's not where the good schools are, where my husband's work. Reasonable commute to their jobs, like those things are mutually exclusive. This is a whole new world. But what infuriates me about this is that he is talking, he, it says Joe Biden will invest $640 billion. Is he going to cash out his investments in China? Is that, does he have $640 billion? Because I think what he's saying is he's going to steal my money and give it to people who will vote for him for that very reason. And it's not going to, it is absolutely not going to result in all of these things. So that whole thing infuriated me. Okay, so let's get to their foundation pillars. The, fa the foundation pillars are equity, data and evidence, and collaboration. So those are three. The first one is equity. So absolutely the first priority out of the gate here is race. It's, uh, they call it equality. They call it equity. Um, maybe it goes beyond race. I don't know, 
But one takeaway that I've had throughout my reading on this is that it's it's really like I I'm I've been of the mind always that the disparities aren't really about race. Like if you had somebody who made the exact same amount of money as you, who went to the same school, who is the same religion, who lived next door to you, <laughs> you would have more in common with that person no matter what race he or she was than you would of some poor person from the inner city of the country or race that you came from. So I have, you know, more more in common with my black neighbor or my Chinese neighbor than I have with poor people in Dublin. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the, it's, it's the, econ- you know, it's the economic educational value, religion, like those are the things that drive concord and discord. And one of the things that was a stated goal in this is in, in some of the housing stuff I'll get to later is bringing people of different socioeconomic strata together as neighbors. And that is going to open such a can of worms. Like maybe not when everything's shiny and new and people are excited and their houses look nice because they were just built, but when this thing runs down and they start withdrawing the federal funding and creating little mini slums and projects, which does seem to be the pattern of like getting people dependent on welfare and other programs. They then withdraw them, which creates these underclasses, creates dependency, keeps them from having the mobility that these, these programs start out by promising. And it will cause, uh, strife. And then you have the poor people are, are going to have behaviors that the middle-class people, are, are not used to or don't like. And of course, I've seen this happen so many times in my personal life, my kids' lives and my family, where if you have like the bad kid, and I'm telling you that I'm normally on the side of the person, like I'm usually the one, not my own kids, but in my family, like we're the ones like this bad kid <laughs> corrupted these good kids. Like that's what happens. The good kids do not like redeem the bad kids in my experience. So I just feel like they're looking for trouble. I, I don't mean to be prejudiced or stereotypical or anything about poor people or whatever, but I come from a family with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, of habits that, you know, can corrupt the neighbors. And I remember when we moved into my parents' house, I was just like five, but when we moved to the suburbs, um, uh, it's a long story. We, we were already in the suburbs. When we moved to the house that my mother lives in now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that there was, I don't know if they, I think they took up a petition to kick out the foster home that was down the street, but there was definitely some pushback. Like, oh, they thought that we were more than one family. <laughs> that was it. Cause there were so many kids they thought, and we had motorcycles and cars. They thought we were more than one family. And they were like, this is not you're not allowed to have more than one family live in this house, but it was just one family. But obviously it was totally disturbing them because we moved into a neighborhood with small houses because we didn't have a lot of money, that there were small houses with very few people in them. So we were very disruptive to the neighborhood and it wasn't good. Like my dad was not happy that his like, you know, hoodlum Brooklynite kids (laughs) were causing problems. 
but they were. And I just, I feel like it, and it wasn't a racial issue. I feel like it is a recipe for conflict. And I feel like that's kind of what they're looking for. Anyway, a little bit of a tangent. Okay. So the second thing they want is data collection. That is the second danged goal, foundational pillar is data collection. And then they have, uh, the third pillar is collaboration across governments and sectors with data sharing. And this is really, this is bad, right? So the reason they want to collect the data is to use the data, to share the data, to exploit the data for whatever reason. But when they want to collaborate, like I've gotten a new understanding through my research in this, uh, I've gotten a new understanding over the next, uh, over, uh, of what like whole of government or across sectors or whatever really means. So I'm going to talk about later, probably in part two, ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I. It's the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. And what, and they have a stated, a stated goal of implementing their initiatives cross-jurisdictionally cross-jurisdictionally. And that to me means that they are going to see when you have something like that, like how do you control that process? How do you assert your rights? How do you use your laws and ordinances as a touchstone if they are implementing these initiatives across jurisdictions? Because a lot of these things kind of have the buy-in of the councilmen, you know, they actually form little coalitions of mayors or whatever. Like it's really bad. I do not like the whole government thing. I think it is an absolute intentional subversion of separation of powers, like across, like this thing being an executive branch thing and up and down, like local to state and all of that, that subsidiarity element of separation of powers. And there's no checks and balances. Nobody's watching. It's very, it's, it's just the coordination of this. I mean, it is, it is orchestrated, it is coordinated. They're very clear about that. You can call it a conspiracy or, or how, whatever word you want to put on it, but it's not a theory. It's very clear. So the solutions that they're promoting, there are three pillars to the solutions, housing and supports, crisis response and prevention. So the housing and supports, of course, this is what I think, or this is what I've been focusing on. And the number one thing is to create housing to meet demand with an eye toward correcting racial, racial disparities that shape homelessness. So I actually know a person who may really be, because of COVID destroying their business and illness, uh, just terrible situation, um, but she is ha has to find a place to live and it's difficult for her. She's got a credit problem through no fault of her own. And it's just, she's got a problem. And I, I really worry about her. Like she's, she can sleep on my couch, <laughs> you know, that, that would be considered homeless though, you see. So she's going to have that problem. And she said that there's like affordable housing or whatever. They have some allocation to that, but I believe that they give preferences to people of color. So what would happen then is that because there's not enough, there's like three apartments to every high rise or whatever, it's definitely not going to be enough for everybody. So people will get priority, the ones who get it, people who don't, don't. So, so she is facing homelessness in part because she's white. And then what does that do? It makes, cause they say they want, they don't like the demographics of homelessness is skewed towards people of color. 
So now, not only are they going to take that socioeconomic thing up into the middle class, but they're going to try to push, try to make <laughs> homeless white people. Like it's, it's kind of messed up. Like if there's a limited number of these houses and you're using race as a factor to decide who gets it rather than need or like urgency, you're making a decision to change the demographic. It's a stated decision. I mean, I don't know what to make of that. Is that writing past wrongs? Like, she never did anything. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, getting public assistance isn't really my forte. However, I could probably pay for her apartment if I got some of the tax dollars back that went to all the wars over the years that I have contributed to against my will and a lot of other things that I think I'd rather have just burned the money. So it's a whole complicated systemic problem. But... But what, what they will do is they're going to build, supposedly, or subsidize or whatever, more affordable, so-called affordable housing. But it seems to me what is all going hand-in-hand hand with the affordable housing is, like, services. I think I read somewhere $3,000 worth of services kind of is the backroom cost of any one of these affordable housing because they need health care, they need monitoring, they need... Um, I don't know, food stamps, a lot of stuff. And I don't know anybody who's getting that, but if that's what you're looking for, you're creating, you know, what, what you're doing, where you're doing that, you will attract, like you will actually generate demand for these services that maybe weren't even there before. And I heard this from somebody who lives in Austin, who's, um, works in the system, like a bureaucrat, whatever. And apparently when they change, so they did exactly what California did, knowing what the result was, and they suspended the ban on encampments. And at this, and like, so there, you couldn't used to have homeless encampments in Austin, of course. Like, it's crazy in California that they allow it. It's awful. It's not good for anyone. But what they did in Austin is at the same time that they did that, they allocated more resources to the homeless, and it literally caused homeless people, or this is anecdotal, but I, you know, whatever. It certainly stands to reason, and this person said it was true and had reason to um, claim to know it, that people migrated. Homeless people, maybe not even homeless people, maybe people who just thought this was a better deal than than sleeping on the, you know, a couch somewhere, their mom's couch, migrated there for the resources. And boy, did that cause conflict. I mean, it really caused conflict because these were not their neighbors. You know, these are people who are being paid for by the locals who obviously weren't locals. That causes a bunch of problems. And uh, and it costs a lot of money, but it exacerbates the problem is what I'm really focused on right here. And, uh, okay, so then it says, and all, the second one is an all of government efforts to end homelessness. So this is another thing that, yes, the all government thing I went into, but to end homelessness, it, this makes me nervous because there's also the push like in New York, after the subway shooter, I completely anticipated this. They're going through the subways and they're trying, they're finding homeless people. They're designating them mentally ill. They're giving them pills, but they're also involuntarily committing them. That's a new thing that the mayor just said. Like, like, and a lot of people have the right to do that now, like social workers, cops, you know, it's not, and it, it doesn't have to be someone who's a danger to themselves or others. 
So if you have a ban on homelessness and you, you can probably classify a lot of homeless people as mentally ill who I was reading a lot about this and mental illness could, what you perceive to be mental illness in homeless people, this is a scholarly article, I can assure you, it's in the show notes, uh, you may be misinterpreting it for, for, so dirty rags and a shopping cart. Well, if you don't have a place to live, like it's reasonable for you to be dirty and have a shopping cart and not to want to have anything valuable or look like anything valuable could be gotten from you. You don't want to be clean. You don't want to be attractive. And you might even kind of shout, you know, act crazy or shout things kind of like if you had a dog barking, just stay away from me. You don't want to mess with me. It could be like a legitimate security approach, you know, defense mechanism. And uh, there, there's a lot of this incestuous stuff or whatever circular reasoning that that people who are mentally ill, like like as if a evidence of mental illness is denying your mental illness, is not realizing that you need help, not wanting to be, you know, like you have to, all mentally ill people have to be involuntarily committed. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's, it's not good. And when you see things coming down about uh, domestic terrorism or any, you know, certain opinions about conspiracies and stuff, you know, that in itself are uh, people call call them call those who question the official narrative crazy. I mean, it's not good. And if you have zero tolerance for homelessness and zero tolerance for mental illness, you combine that and you've got a lot of involuntary committing. And I actually, you know, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I think Real Light Sleeper on Twitter turned me on to Zaz. He's a like a libertarian psychiatrist. He's dead now, but he he pointed out like the people who are um, who are accused of crimes are get more rights than people who are accused of mental illness. Like you, people who are are who are witnessed committing crimes, they can get bail. They get a jury trial with their peers that has to be unanimous. I mean, that's not the process for commitment, and I think it should be. I think I I, I think that I think that it should be. So the third thing is to prevent homelessness by increasing employment and education and reducing housing instability to vulnerable populations. So I'm just wondering if like they're going to teach everybody coding on the taxpayer's dime. Is this all about free labor for IBM or free worker training for IBM? I mean, because some of the stuff is about literally free worker training for IBM, like free community college. Like that that stuff's subsidized by IBM. Oh, anyway. Um, oh, uh, Travis from Zoomcron blog just tweeted me today. I was knee deep in the subject. Maybe that's why I was tweeting a lot about it. Maybe that's why he tweeted back at me about, oh no, he had just written an article about, I think, worker housing in like homes made of pallets. Very, very weird. I didn't get to his article because I was going to air, but uh, I think he said that it went with like the whole tiny housing boom. And I want to talk a little bit about SRO, single resident occupancy or single room occupancy. I don't know what it's like. One person lives in one room. doesn't have a kitchen, might not even have a bathroom. 
But that's the way it was in the old days. There was a lot of that. If you look back at old movies and hat tip to Kat and Michael, who pointed this out to me, that like old movies show you things that used to be true. So I remember in It's a Wonderful Life, like in the alternate universe where his wife, oh my goodness, was a spinster. You're not going to like it. She's a spinster. And I, I think she lived in a boarding house. And like the lady in the boarding house didn't want her to see men or, you know, like they really, they button it up, but like there used to be boarding houses and rooming houses and stuff like that. And I would say, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but you know, let's get to that in just a second. Anyway, I'm a little worried that using, saying that there should be zero homelessness on any given night, using employment. Um, it, when we get to the housing stuff, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about, um, these like, add-on homes and manufactured homes and a lot of stuff like that, which I'm not in like totally opposed to, but I suspect like this just feels very much, especially after I did like the community college thing and how it's really just a training ground for coders so that the corporations don't have to actually pay for the, you know, people come ready trained that maybe these are just, you know, warehousing this kind of low level employment um, or like with the tiny homes, they have a lot of surveillance. I know Allison McDowell talks about that. Like they have a lot of, like they literally will measure how much you go to the bathroom, like not kidding. And in that case, you know, she calls it the open air prison, but I would say it's like open air institutionalization, especially if you're including mentally ill people in there who are on meds and there's just constant monitoring and they're getting food stamps. I mean, it's as if they're in either, you know, it's if they're like either prison or mental facility or whatever, but they're seem to be out in the world. Like I, that's what I'm afraid of with that movement. Yeah. I mean, if somebody wants to live in a tiny home, like I don't care, but it's not somebody wants to live in a tiny home. It's a, like a homeless encampment. It all of a sudden springs up somewhere. The locals freak out. The only answer that seems to be acceptable is, or the most expedient thing, the cheapest, the thing that has federal grant is tiny homes. It's happening in LA. You see them. And then all of a sudden in your backyard, there used to be a park or a vacant lot that maybe a McDonald's was going to go up in. There's a bunch of these little, these little homes, these little like, trailers or boxes that people live in, but it's still loud and raucous and bright and smelly. Um, but there they are, they're going to probably stay there. And, and they're, you know, it's almost like they're customers for welfare being created and kind of locked in. I mean, it's, it's very exploitive to absolutely everybody involved. And I would not downplay the impact or the, the, role of those who benefit from the money, whoever builds tiny homes or whatever, like, and I'm sure there's like hardworking businessmen involved, but when, when every single thing gets absorbed by the federal government, the only way you get contracts is by bribing. And then once you get the contract, well, heck, <laughs> you got to make the most of it, don't you? So it's a terrible, I feel like I, I just don't feel hopeful about that situation at all. And I think that this pillar three kind of brings all that together about 
preventing homelessness by education and stable housing and all of that stuff. It sounds, it sounds great. Who could object? But I don't think they mean it to work. And I, I think it's just, it's ready. It's there for other reasons, even just venal reasons of, you know, opening up big tax dollars to contractors who lobby. I mean, which is Biden's bread and butter, right? Wasn't that like a lot of Hunter Biden's emails were, and I remember reading one about like, these are the politicians who are in our pocket who have infrastructure money to spend. This was an email to the Chinese investors, <laughs> you know? Um, but I do think it goes beyond that too. So, but I did want to go back to like, what, what did cause homelessness? I was talking about the single room occupancy. So what you hear a lot is that homelessness is caused by deinstitutionalization. And that's like this deinstitutionalization movement happened in the 60s. And it was, of course, there were scandals about how people were treated inside institutions and, you know, just like everything that ushers in a new era of socialism, leveling up the welfare state. It's always ushered in by anecdotal scandals, the muckrakers, the slaughterhouses, the insane asylums, the orphanages, like all of these things. But they coincide with like orphanages and institutions for people with Down syndrome when they went away. The abortion rate, of course, like you know, once Roe versus Wade was ushered in right after that, the abortion rate. And now that you have sonograms, abortion rate for Downs is like 100%. <laughs> you know, it's close. Not 100%, but it might be. It might be. It used to be basically 100% if people got sonograms. I don't know now that everybody's getting a sonogram. It can't be 100%. But so, so this deinstitutionalization happened to coincide with psychopharmacology. <laughs> so they're drugs that people could take every day that change their mindset, for better or worse. And for some reason, and so I guess they said, well, you don't need it if you can control your mind that way. You don't need to be in an institution where we have to actually physically control what you do with your body when your mind is sick because we're going to control your mind. And supposedly people went out on the street and it was mayhem because people were still completely mentally ill and then just had nowhere to go. But the homelessness, like modern homelessness, did not emerge for another 10 years till the late 70s. And by coincidence, that Habitat UN thing was in 1976. But and what happened, and this I actually, you know, haven't connected, I haven't found the smoking guns necessarily, but around that time, like in the late, mid to late 70s, these single resident occupancies, so that so they existed for a long time. I think they really surged, maybe peaked during when World War II workers, there was like this influx of workers from the farms to to into the factories as the soldiers went overseas. And then when the soldiers came back, and maybe those people moved out, maybe they didn't, but then the soldiers also used single room occupancy. And when I drive around sometimes neighborhoods, in different towns, I think Colorado and Denver, I noticed this a lot, and there's some here, you see a lot of really small houses, really small houses, just one after another. And I generally think that those are World War II building boom, post-World War II building boom houses. They were probably subsized, whatever, but it's just like, that's where, that was, those were starter homes for soldiers and their wives. Well, a lot of the soldiers weren't married and didn't do that and maybe couldn't get those subsidies. And they would be in those single room occupants' houses. But a lot of other people were too, like women who were secretaries or sales clerks or 
just a lot. And there were all sorts of them. I read a few articles on this, um, which I included in the show notes. Lots of uh, different ones, flop houses, even boarding houses. And they were, you know, would tend towards, you know, gender, like there would be women's ones. The YMCA was for men. There were, um, I'm sure, like ethnic you know, like in communities, immigrant communities, they came together and they they weren't necessarily poor or unsafe or anything. Like there were rules, especially in the girls' ones. When you do watch old movies, you see like the old lady who runs the house, she's watching. She doesn't want bad stuff. So people who couldn't, uh, you know, you could rent a room. So a housewife could rent out a room and that would leverage her housework. It would leverage her cooking dinner and, and the sales clerk girl wouldn't have to do all that stuff. Or um, it would be communal living where you could have a room or room with a bathroom, communal eating, or every, you know, people would eat at the automat. Maybe that's why there were automats where you go in and you just take the, that. There was even hot beds, hot beds. So you could have a bed for eight hours and then the next guy would take the bed for eight hours. And, um, and I remember I met an Uber driver who said that he and his buddies, five of them, they were from some other town. They would go to San Francisco and rent a, a room with two beds. There were six guys and they would each do eight hour shifts. So two guys would sleep, four guys would work, two guys would come back, you know, and, uh, they, that's how they paid the rent there. And they said that they would do it like during holidays or busy seasons in San Francisco and they made money hand over foot. It was great. Maybe they were Airbnb, which is a kind of way of doing this, although Airbnb tends to be much higher end. So a lot of laws passed all over the place that reduced single room occupancy places. They didn't allow new ones to be built. You could be grandfathered. So then there was an existing stock that would diminish over time, but then they gave these massive tax incentives so that those would be converted to apartments. So then you had this massive decline in the, in single room occupancy. In New York City, for example, it went from, I think the peak in the 50s was 200,000 units. And then by the end of the 70s, it was like 25,000 units. And then I was just trying to piece that together because 200,000 units just in New York. I mean, say that's like a tenth of the country. That would be 2 million housing units you know, 2 million individuals. And when you look at the homelessness problem, it's less than that. And there was an, uh, there was a, a task force formed in the eighties, you know, maybe 10 years after the problem called the U S interagency council on homelessness, which by the way, is the agency that put out this homelessness recommendation. So obviously since that agency was created, the homelessness problem, at least anecdotally, at least they would have us know, has gotten much worse. And they're going to say it's for other reasons. But if it was deinstitutionalization, which happened once, I mean, I guess if the population of, of mentally ill people is growing, we should talk about that. And I actually probably need to just do a whole other show on that. But there was a sociologist at the time, a little bit controversial, by the name of Peter Harris, who said that the homelessness problem is way overstated. It's way overcounted, and um, it's usually short-term, often short-term or more temporary. So when you see like homeless numbers of a million or a million and a half in one year, you be careful that they're not 
you know, what they mean by that is if it's a million and a half people who were homeless during that year, that really only means like how many, so they do also give you, they give you stats for like the night. So Biden says that 500,000 homeless people were, or people were homeless on this night, which seems like a gross exaggeration. And Peter Harris would say the same thing, I think, if you're still alive. So, um, but even then, that means that if the maximum number of homeless people in any given night was 500,000 in the whole country, that means you only need 500,000 beds. Because if there's a million and a half, it just means that, you know, that those people were only homeless for a third of the year. And that's when you can really get your hands around the problem, which is it, it isn't a bigger problem than that SROs would have solved. And I think about, so this is how I think about things. It makes perfect sense. That I never even thought of SROs, but I did think of this once. I want to do this experiment. What if I moved to the cheapest town in America and like say I was poor, homeless, hungry, whatever. I was an impoverished American. And I moved to, I just got on a bus or whatever, went to the, you know, hopefully you know, begged for enough money to get on the bus or get a pass. I'm sure you get a pass. Go to the poorest place in America, the cheapest place in America, get a job at McDonald's, rent, pay some old lady within walking distance to sleep on her couch, wear the uniform of McDonald's and eat on your shift, which I think you're allowed to do. You would need basically no money for food. You can eat one meal a day and there's a lot of calories in McDonald's and you don't need transportation. You go just sleep. So you have food, clothing, and shelter. That's what you need. How much would you have to pay that old lady in the cheapest place in America to sleep on her couch? If you're good, if you're bad, well, I have no sympathy for you. I'm thinking literally like $150 a month at the most. $150 a month for a couch. That's literally a dollar an hour if you worked 40 hours a week. You're getting your clothing and food at McDonald's. So the baseline here is a dollar an hour is a dollar an hour to like not be homeless. And obviously, that's the b bare minimum of what you do. It's not realistic. You certainly wouldn't have a phone. You know what I mean? Like you're not having anything else. Just the absolute necessity, so you don't have to live in the woods naked and eat bark. And then you build from there. You could have 10 times that, right? You can make $10 an hour. And that, that changes the whole outlook of the problem, right? And of course, we are talking also about people who, you know, when you're dirty, maybe you can't get a job at McDonald's. There are definitely problems with it. And, you know, if you are talking about real mental illness, that's something else again. But if we're talking about just homelessness, like that helps helps me like put a baseline on what the real problem is. Like, uh, uh, you know, would SROs solve the problem of homelessness if you really think about it, if they're very close to where the people have to work, whether you share a bathroom, which is a possibility, you know, like that kind of thing. So I feel like there is a solution there. But here's the problem. We have lost that, what I call, I've called heirloom wisdom. And we have lost it. So it's like guns, like people using guns or preserving food or whatever. Like the, the chain with the past has been broken. And the little 
cultural elements that made this work, that allowed it to be bifurcated, allowed it to be um, striated, whatever, like so that you'd have poor, poor people could live in these or um, women would live in those or whatever, like those little things that, uh, an etiquette that maybe emerged around it to make it all work, like that stuff's all lost. So it, so it would be hard to get that back. It could totally come back. And like Airbnb definitely is is hitting some of that on the high end. But the way they're taught, so they're actually talking about, the reason I'm getting articles about this is that they want it in our heads, right? They, they're trying to change zoning laws. They want this stuff in our heads. But the way they talk about it now is this stuff that is completely um, burdened by government payments. It's really targeted towards the poor. And when they started outlawing SROs, a black market for them emerged that only the destitute would use. So it did seem like just a poor thing, just a flop house thing. And I think that's what, you know, when you, when you make it, it, it just sounds to me like their, their solutions are all just going to end up to be welfare hotels. New York had welfare hotels. They were not cheap and they were dangerous. So I just have this sense that they want us to tap into these great solution ideas, but they're not really going to work the way our archetype might you know, set up for that. So I, another thing I noticed is that there was all sorts of, um, you know, the scandals that usher in the new era. Jack the Ripper, supposedly, like the number one theory that I came across when I was looking into that was that it was a Masonic conspiracy and they did this most brutal thing and it changed the whole attitude towards like government being involved in with the poor. And I think that's a completely plausible explanation because that was a really crazy crime. But yeah, so I think they look for, they promote extreme crises to get a new level of central control in there. And that's what they're getting. So let's just say that's the homelessness issue. And, and the homelessness issue obviously is there, in my opinion, to promote the housing agenda, which isn't just an agenda. It's like Agenda 21. <laughs> so I want to tell you about that. I will tell you about that in the next show. I'll tell you a little bit about what I think about zoning, which might surprise you, and some techniques to prepare yourself, to arm yourself, to save your town from some of this Agenda 21 stuff by any name. <laughs> Housing reform by any other name is still Agenda 21. So I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.